Hey there, you're listening to Past to Present, a social studies podcast by educators for you. We'll take a look at the middle school social studies standards taught in the state of Texas. Together, let's clarify some key concepts in history and think of ways to help students relate history to their everyday life. So today we're going to talk about the early republic, primarily Washington's presidency, which is a tough unit for kids to get because it's a lot of information. Yeah. And so um, we're just going to kind of jump right into it and kind of paraphrasing the teaks is we're looking at the domestic problems that they faced. They're looking at national security, building a military, the economic system, and the authority of the central government, right? Definitely. So the key focus that I want students to understand when I'm done with this unit is we evaluate presidents based on two areas, two categories, domestic issues and how they handled them and foreign issues and how they handled them. Also, the key takeaway that we want them to get is that the power of the federal government is going to slowly increase. You know, we started with the Articles of Confederation, the national government had almost no power and now as the constitution is enacted and we're going through the early republic era with a lot of decisions that are made the national government's power is going to continue to increase so do you with the domestic and the international issues and that question that you were using do you have kids ever look at contemporary stuff or have time to kind of address those things we really don't we could i think that'd be a great idea but i just talk to kids about this is how historians will evaluate presidents and their successes and it's done with every president and i i mention current presidents and recent presidents um, as an example of that but we don't really talk in detail about it right that would almost be hard uh, to do but I, I i like that idea a lot yeah so we're looking at washington we kind of start off with the uh, the state of the economic system, right? Yes. And how the country's broke, they owe a lot of money to um, the f- foreign creditors, and how are they going to handle that? And this all falls on Hamilton. So it's going to kind of be a little bit of a preview for our Hamilton-Jefferson uh, podcast, but Hamilton has a plan. Definitely. And so we discussed Washington's cabinet and his, his three uh, major cabinet members being Secretary of State, which is Jefferson, Secretary of Treasury, Hamilton, and then the uh, Secretary of War, mm-hmm. Knox, which Knox. we're not going to really talk about Knox. Enough. I don't even really mention Knox because it just throws him off. Right. So Hamilton has a plan. How do you how do you work through the plan with him? Oh, my gosh. I don't start with Hamilton. Well, I guess I do. I guess I do teach Hamilton's plan with Washington. Um, I kind of introduce this. When we, when we start this unit, I don't focus on Washington. I just focus on the key issues that a new nation is going to have to address okay. right off the bat. So I kind of do a response groups activity. I know we talked about this earlier, but um, they get an issue like America is coming out of the American Revolution. So we kind of take a step back because we're coming off of the Constitution. So we're like, okay, let's go back to the American Revolution. We're coming out of the war. We have a lot of debt. How should we respond? And the kids get options as to how they can respond. And they choose whatever option they want, and then they have to just think about the consequences of right. that choice. Right. So that's something that we stole from you, or I stole from you. And we have a slideshow, basically, with three choices. Yeah. And you don't really care what they predict. 
Correct. As long as they have a reason why. Mm -hmm. And then you move in and on their sheet, they just kind of summarize what was actually chosen. So it's a quick way to get them to take notes and yeah. summarize without spending a lot of time on yeah. it. Yeah, I think technically it's a TCI strategy, oh, okay. but um, where that's history of life for those of you who don't know what TCI is. But yeah, so we do that. And then that leads us into, okay, well, how's Washington going to address these things? And it's important that the kids understand that he's going to create a cabinet. He didn't have to do that. Nowhere in the Constitution does it say that he has the power to have a cabinet. He just enacts one. And that that really shows a lot about Washington, that he knows that in order to be successful at this job, he needs to rely on experts as well as his own values and his own beliefs, right? So he's going to start this cabinet, and he's really going to rely on their opinions to help him make decisions on things. I think that's important today, and you can draw that back to presidents today and their, you know, who they choose to be their cabinet representatives and how important that is in, in our government. All right. I like that idea. I think so. Looking at the the economic issues, it's the assumption of the the debts, the state debts. Is yep. the national government going to take on those debts, or the state's going to continue to pay them off? Uh, create a national bank and tariffs. Correct. All Hamilton's plans that he really borrowed from Robert Morris, who Articles of Confederation and whatnot. Um, and so you kind of go through how they're going to solve that assumption problem, and that goes to the compromise on where they're going to move the capital, which is probably overplayed a little bit, but uh, Hamilton talks with the Southerners and says, hey, we will, we will, if you will help us assume the debt of the New England states and whatnot, we will move the capital further south. And then that's where they move it to Washington, D.C. Did you teach that when you were in the classroom? Yes. I didn't teach that. I don't teach that. I just teach the four steps to the financial plan, and that's pretty much it. Like, I just teach the nat creating a national bank. What else is there? Oh my gosh. It's the assuming so of the debt. Assuming of the state debts. And then the tariffs. Tariffs and also the whiskey tax. Right. And the fact that we're going to start basically, a, I, I talk about what is a sin tax and I talk about that. Well, so I taught that because the kids like the story. Yeah. And it gives them a little bit of context and background to it. I, I don't think you have to. Yeah. Uh, but I like the idea of teaching compromise again. Though, yeah. Because we're about to get into a very That's true. second semester That's a good compromise point. heavy. Yeah. I like it. Um, and so then we move into the response. Well, so the assumption of the debt, and we've, we've kind of taken care of that. The creation of the National Bank, and that's where we're going to talk about, I taught with strict constructionists and loose constructionists. Yes. What do we do about the Constitution? And the reason I liked this part was because we need to talk about the Constitution isn't doesn't cover every situation. Right. And how does a president handle that? Right. Do they have to follow the letter of the law, or can they... As long as they're not prevented from doing it, can they do it? Right. And so I like having that conversation with kids. I like having them think about that and, and struggle with that. I always have them. And this is kind of maybe a bad setup because it looks bad on one particular side. But what I always have them do is I say, okay, raise your hand if when there's a rule, you're like, okay, I have to do exactly what the rule says. And if it, the rules say don't say I can do it, then I can't do that. And some, like, two kids raise their hand, right? Mm -hmm. And then I say, okay, how many of you look at the rules and say, well, Miss Stevens didn't include that in the rule, so I can do it. And then half the kids will, almost all the kids will raise their hand right. because they all think they're little rebels when really they're not. But 
I like that comparison because it gets kids to relate to how people are interpreting the Constitution and how they look at the Constitution. It's not a direct relation, obviously, because I wouldn't say that if you're a loose constructionist, you're a rule breaker or whatever, but um, it's just kind of an interesting way to to quickly engage students in that conversation and kind of relate it to them. Yeah, it connects with them pretty quickly. Yeah. I, I did the same thing uh, in the class, and they, yeah. they got it. Yeah. And then you kind of move in. And the thing about that is that also leads into our eventual political parties being formed between uh, Federalist, and anti, uh, Federalist and Democratic Republicans. Yes. Sorry, I almost said anti-Federalist. <laughs> that's okay. And then we talk about raising revenue, whether that's in domestic taxes or the tariffs. Again, we're laying foundations again for future units. We've kind of wrapped up a lot of the problems that were created uh, with colonization and the American Revolution, and now we're moving into kind of making that con slow movement towards the Civil War. Definitely. And the tariffs um, get them fired up. Um, so you got to teach what a tariff is. Absolutely. you got to teach what a protective tariff is and the purpose behind that. The other thing that the kids need to know is that this was the national government's almost entire way of making money. For a long time. For a long time. So do you teach protective tariffs in this unit or do you wait until Jackson? I teach them now. Okay. Because I like for kids to see how protective tariffs progress and how oh, each okay. president deals with protective tariffs. Because if I found that when I, I used to just teach it with Jackson, and I found that when I did that, it automatically became that Jackson was doing these terrible taxes. But if I teach it with Washington, the kids approach it a little bit differently, and they, they look at protective tariffs from a different viewpoint. So then when it gets to Jackson and South Carolina is upset about the protective tariffs, they don't, they're not so one-sided in their opinion. They are able to look at it from both sides and kind of think about that. You've convinced me. You're welcome. Well done. <laughs> so we wrap that up with, you know, kind of, like I said, I like problem-solution notes. I like the idea of kids identifying problems and what's the solution. Again, it's a, it's a different way of taking notes um, and creating notes, and we know that's really important for our kids. Yeah. We know they struggle with it. Um, and so if, if you can do that, it kind of, and you can tier that or scaffold it for different groups. You can mm -hmm. give them the problems and have them find the solutions or a mix of either one and just to let them address those things and how those things were solved. I think it, it really helps them. We do um, a lot of il illustrated dictionaries, which again is a TCI strategy in the ISN if you're using an ISN. So um, the, one of the first things we do is we teach domestic issues and foreign issues. And as we teach all of this stuff throughout Washington's presidency, the students are categorizing. Is it domestic or is it foreign? Is it domestic or is it foreign? I know that's base level, but I need them to understand the difference between the two. So we have them draw a little anchor chart or a little illustrated dictionary in their ISN that shows domestic being within the country and foreign being outside of the country. And we also do the same thing with protective tariffs. So we have an anchor chart that shows goods coming in to the America and that they're paying a tax at the port. Right. So when you're talking about that foreign and domestic and having them identify, on your assessments, do your assessments ask questions like, uh, which of the following was a domestic issue that Washington had to deal with? And your answer choices are three. They're all factually correct, mm -hmm. but only one of them is a domestic issue. I don't know if we actually have that exact question, but I do know that I, I'm just pulling it from the teak is that it's asking you to identify major domestic problems faced by the leaders. Um, and then it says 
uh, E on that same teak is identify the foreign policies of presidents. So I found over the years that if I don't clearly, if I if if I just jumble it all together, that gets lost, and the kids don't understand what the difference is. Right. And the the really interesting thing to teach about this is that the role of the president changes over time. When Washington starts, he doesn't deal with as much domestic as he as the president does today. And so that's an again goes back to that increase of federal power over time is that slowly they've taken the president has taken more of an active role in domestic issues. Right. Um, and so it, I like to talk with kids about that and talk about, well, is that a loose constructionist or a strict constructionist point of view on the Constitution as to whether the president can interact in domestic policies as much as he does today? So it's kind of a fun topic for kids. So one of your intro questions could be if, you know, your warm-up question could be, knowing what we know about past events in American history, before Washington becomes president, do you expect President Washington to have more of a role in foreign affairs or mm-hmm. domestic affairs and let the kids kind of justify, kind of a way to, hey, welcome back from Christmas break, yeah. see if you can recall this information? Yeah. And I mean, when you teach foreign versus domestic, like I said, I teach that on the very first day, and that guides my entire early republic era. I just find that it's easy for the kids to remember it that way, because then when we go to Adams, we look at his foreign policy, we look at his domestic policy. When we go to Jefferson, we look at this foreign policy, and the kids will rate them based on how they did in the foreign category and how they did in the domestic category, and they'll kind of fill out like a report card almost for every president all the way through Monroe. Okay. Um, so I just find that that makes it a lot easier. Okay. So our next kind of thing we're looking at domestically is the Whiskey Rebellion, right? Yes. So that is the that is the rebellion against the whiskey tax that had been passed by uh, Congress and signed by Washington, who, by the way, was a huge whiskey distiller himself. And it's a big deal out in western Pennsylvania because that's their sort of currency. Correct. It's the easiest way to move bulk grain. And so they run out every tax collector in the county, mm. in the area, I should say. Um, and so... This, we try to get them to tie this back to Shay's Rebellion. Right. And so my thought would be having them read, you know, maybe the two, you know, a little bit about Shay's and about the whiskey tax and make that connection of, you know, maybe what we're like a mind map, a double bubble or a Venn diagram. Yes. Comparing the two. Because you really want them to recognize that this is where Washington says we're not like the Articles of Confederation anymore. Right. That's long gone. Because I think... If you talk about it, you know, Europe's expecting them to fail. And this is the first time where they seem to have their stuff together a little bit better than they did with the articles. Yeah. I don't think the Whiskey Rebellion gets enough credit. I really feel like that's a defining moment in our republic as to whether or not we are going to continue and whether or not a democracy can continue and be successful. Because the question is, can a a democratic government actually operate and not turn into chaos and mob rule. And mob rule. Because we've seen mob rule basically take place since the Stamp Act all the way through uh, Shays. And so it's kind of not an end because mob rule continues to, to play a part in American history. But this is kind of where we, we, we kind of put our foot down a little bit. Right. I'm excited because my team and I thought of, of a new engage for this lesson that we're going to do over the Whiskey Rebellion. We are going to compare to Shays as well and just kind of look at well, how was it dealt with and how was the outcome different and what in the government made the outcomes different? 
Oh, nice. So we're going to try and pull that in. But the engage that we're going to do is we're going to go on to YouTube and we're going to find, I haven't found the perfect one yet, but we're going to find a video of a kid throwing a fit. Okay. And that's where we're going to show the kids. And I'm going to tell them, you're a parent. You respond. How, how do you respond to this situation? And they have to write what they're going to do nice. to deal with the child. Right. And so then we're going to talk about the whiskey rebellion and we're going to kind of see how does the national government respond and were they in a line in, in compliance with how you as the parent would have responded. So are you going to give them choices or are you just going to let them kind of come at it cold? I'm just going to let them come at it cold turkey and see because that's what Washington had to do. Right. And I'm going to try and compare it, you know, as to it's going to be difficult because they don't have ownership of that child. But, you know, if it is their kid, how, how are you going to respond to that? And then I kind of want to just pull that in to show the students I mean, how ridiculous it is that yeah. the um, Pennsylvania uh, wh- whiskey distillers are acting this way. So I did that. I, I did that similar with reconstruction. Mm. I like that. We'll talk yeah. about that when yeah, we yeah. that. So, again, we're just want them to compare. And I like the part where you said the um, how do you deal with this? It's yeah. a big deal. Yeah. Um, the one that we tend to skip over quite a bit, we talk about it, but we don't spend a lot of time on it because, unfortunately, that's. American history and the way it's taught is the American Indian challenges, mm-hmm. um, the Battle of Fallen Timbers, uh, colonists moving west and uh, ignoring the the treaties that have been signed. Again, we covered that with problem solution notes in my class. It's really sad to me that we just kind of skip over the American Indians until we get to Jackson, and then pretty much all we teach about is the Trail of Tears. Right. Um, I don't know. We don't teach. I don't. I'm not going to lie. I don't teach any of that i straight up skip over all issues with native americans really is that am i in trouble for that uh, well i i have no i think native americans might feel that i'm in trouble for that I, yeah it's just there's no time and it's not explicitly written in the teaks it's not regularly tested on the star um and so there's just you know maybe maybe this year what i'll do is i'll give some extension options for kids that that want to extend their thinking and well, it might be do something, some articles. Might be something that people who are compacting, if they are compacting yeah. their classes, they could they could uh, include more. I don't think there's anything wrong with including it, but with the the demographics of students that I'm I'm dealing with, I really have to focus in on the key information. If you're teaching at a school that the students are already coming to you with a lot of background knowledge, I definitely think you could spend some time there. But um, you know. I'm having to make up for lost time on stuff, so. Could you approach it from uh, kind of a, a minority group way, which is kind of a big deal now? Well, it's always been a big deal, but it's kind of been more in the forefront um, and look at it as a, a group of people who were disenfranchised, maybe. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm kind of spitballing here. Something we need to spend more time on, though, I yeah, think, thinking I about. Yeah, I agree. I wish that they would put it more explicitly in the teaks. So is there anything else domestically you would focus on? Mm. What did we cover? Let's review. So we re- covered the economic problems okay. and Hamilton's plan very quickly, the Whiskey Rebellion, um, and the problem of the American Indians. Would you? I don't spend a lot of time on creating the court. Oh, I do talk about the courts. All we right. talk about the – I mean, it's not a lot of time, but we do talk about the federal – Judiciary Act. Judiciary Act and how that wasn't set up and how um, – vague the co- the constitution is on that and so we do talk about that very briefly we just say 
Washington signed the, the order from Congress to set it up. And we don't talk about, um, you know, precedent used to be a big thing. I talk about that. We talk about it, but it's, you know, it's kind of one of those things that was, uh, I felt it was really a big deal eight years ago, ten years ago, and then we we still teach it, but I don't know if it's just a carryover of old teaks. Um, I don't, I still talk about it pretty right. pretty explicitly. Um, and the reason that I talk about it is because it's still a huge part of our government, in my opinion. Okay. You know, with the Supreme Court, everything they do is setting a precedent, and then we refer back to it. We refer back to it. We look back at historical precedents. That's pretty much what English common law was built on, was the idea of a precedent. Yeah. And you know, something having to occur to overturn that precedent. So we talk about that. My favorite one to talk about is Washington's farewell address, which we're about to get to, but when he steps down Mm -hmm. and the fact that that was just followed as though it's a law until, well, there were three or four presidents who had tried to run for reelection, but never actually got it. And then FDR obviously is the one who's going to have us create a constitutional amendment right so i like talking about it with kids and i like talking about the the checks and balances of that is if a precedent isn't working or doesn't isn't relevant anymore how do we overthrow that how do we change it etc okay um so on to foreign foreign so foreign the big one is the french yes the french revolution i always like teaching a little bit about the guillotine just because it disgusts the kids and they get grossed out by it Mm -hmm. but we don't get into the french revolution too much (laughs) But we talk about how it does split Washington's cabinet. Mm-hmm. And you have the Anglophiles and the Francophiles. And those the, two words. You've used those before. And yeah. I'm just like, I don't know what those words are. The mean. English lovers and the French lovers. Okay. That's what I call them. Um, I, I don't use those words with kids. But it's kind of the the starting of that major fracture between Hamilton and uh, Jefferson. And Adams and Jefferson. Ah, uh, yes. That's really, to me, where the feud comes in. I don't know if... Hamilton's as passionate about it. I mean, I think he is, but not as much as Adams. Well, well, Hamilton's more economics. I mean, he sees yeah, the money. Yeah, and I don't pull Hamilton into it because by the time that we get there, Hamilton's kind of faded in the distance because he's not going to be running for president. And ultimately, the reason that I teach it mostly with between Adams and Jefferson as the feud is because it's going to impact their presidencies okay. and how they kind of run their foreign policy. So the problem is... What does the United States do with this French Revolution? We have the Treaty of Alliance with them, but we have a business relationship with England. How do we balance this out? And the other issue that's brought up is, you know, we just came out of a war. We're trying to recover. We're trying to get up on our own two feet and start being an effective government. And if France, if we join in with France on this revolution, one argument is that um, our, our government could collapse. We're not ready yet for another war well you have the british in canada which are a problem right and so uh washington comes up with this neutrality thing and it's nobody it's kind of uh not accepted internationally he kind of makes it up and the idea is and he is his brilliant lawyering if you would um is that we signed the treaty with the king of france and he no longer is in power we have a brand new government we didn't sign that treaty with you guys so it doesn't really it's not valid right and England, we're just we're continuing to trade with you. All things are the same. He does a good job of like playing the middle ground, right? And Adams and and Jefferson, when they take over, they really struggle with that because they already have alliances. Like Adams spent a lot of time in Britain. 
well, and Jefferson and, spent a lot of time in France. And Jefferson and Marquis de Lafayette are close friends. Um, and so they, they have a harder time putting that aside. But Washington's neutrality is the idea that you don't want to get dragged into other people's drama, whether it's positive or negative. And I love teaching that to kids because they really relate to that. Right. I'm like, look, I, I don't want to be best friends with you or enemies with you. If I'm best friends with you, then if you have a problem with someone else, now I'm getting dragged into that drama and I didn't want to be in on that drama. And so I just don't make friends or enemies. I'm just neutral in all circumstances. So that's a good point of bringing it back to the kids. And which is something I, I almost did the exact same thing. But then I asked them, so if you have two good friends who are fighting each other and you choose not to support either one, what in the end happens? Yeah, you, and they every both kid, get mad at you. They both get mad at you. Yeah. And then they kind of join together and they automatically identify. And so then you talk about, well, yeah, French were attacking our ships. The British were attacking I've our ships. I've never pulled that in. I've always just said they tried to stay out of it. But I like the idea of, well, if you're friends with both, I love that. And so that's kind of what ends up happening. Yeah. And, you know, international politics aren't much different than junior high politics. Yeah. Um, so if you if you don't know really what we're talking about, if you're a first-year teacher, uh, um, let's kind of take a step back. The French Revolution is going on, and the British don't want the French to be successful in this revolution because it's a little bit too close to home. I'm giving the basic version of well, it. Well, scare, it scares them. Yeah, because if the French are able to overthrow their monarchy, then that's going to get English people the idea that they can overthrow their monarchy. And they've already just had the revolution. So the, the British kind of get involved in not necessarily joining in on the mm -hmm. French Revolution to try and stop it, but just doing as much as they can behind the scenes to try and stop it. And we're trading with the French. We're bringing, we're trading war materials with them. We're trading supplies, whatever we need to make money. We're also trading with the British. And essentially what happens is both the French and the British start capturing our boats and seizing the cargo, seizing the sailors on the boats. And doing what we call impressment, which this kind of goes into Adams and Jefferson's presidency as well, but basically forcing average merchants to enlist in their, the French or the British military. Right. And so um, the British are actively searching out anybody they thought was a British sailor at some point and yeah. um, saying, well, you're, you, you, you left your duty, uh, when you weren't supposed to and so yeah so it's not like the british are just saying hey america please help us or the french are just saying hey we need your help remember last time like they're also attacking our boats right washington's choosing to turn a blind eye to it as much as he possibly can um but when adams and jefferson take over the drama becomes a little bit more and this is ultimately what's going to lead to the war of 1812 right and th that also shows the weakness of the u.s yeah there's nothing we could do about it yeah and so um, how Washington handles that is pretty brilliant. I mean, like we said, he he he, narr he handles the politics of it really well. Um, one of the only times I ever saw him f physically upset in public was with Citizen Genet, the, the French guy who comes across and tries to recruit. And he is directly rude to Washington's face. And um, Washington, for lack of a better term, kicks him out of America yeah. physically. I mean, he, he's he's... That's angry funny. about this guy yeah it's a fun story and getting the kids like the idea of our founding fathers acting like kids yeah so do you think it shows weakness that washington decided to remain neutral sounds like a good question to ask kids yeah i mean i you you made that statement and i could see that point but i also could see the other point that i think washington could have taken action if he wanted to mm. um but I just don't know if there was anything that was going to be positive to come out of us joining in on the war. 
I think I think that's what he realized. I mean, they could have done it from an expansion point and tried to take some of the Caribbean islands, but I think staying the course and not fighting was probably yeah. the right decision overall. Yeah, but which th- is fun for kids to think about when they do their analysis of the, the presidents. And that's the important part that you have to get to. You have to get to the part where once you've taught the basics of this, the kids need to evaluate the president based on the, those items and how they responded. Well, and recognize that Washington's precedent of neutrality is going to be U.S. foreign policy almost all the way up to World War II, for the most part, um, as as at least publicly, that's going to be the, the phrase. Right. Um, then we do with the, we move to the Spanish trying to close the port of New Orleans. You get um, Pinckney's Treaty, um, which is the idea that um, that basically the U.S. can use a, the Mississippi River. So we're kind of starting that move towards westward expansion and kind of getting kids thinking about us moving west and the importance of New Orleans, which is going to tie in when you get to Jefferson and the Louisiana Purchase. Um I don't teach that. Do you not? We used to teach Jay's treaty, but it doesn't really resonate with them. I don't teach them. Jay's or Pinckney's treaty. How did your kids ever get by without knowing Pinckney's treaty? I don't know. Yeah, right. It hasn't been on a single star test. But we're always looking for dom- we're looking for domestic issues and and foreign issues. Yeah. Well, I think you could teach it. I just well, never, I, did. I just haven't. I haven't. I, I mean, um I think it's because we're trying so hard to focus on the big concept concepts that are going to help kids make connections. And to me, my kids just never struggle with Manifest Destiny. They really don't. So what do you do? For, you only, so your only foreign issue is you're going to talk about is the French Revolution? Um, yeah. Okay. And neutrality. Neutrality. And then so essentially when we get to the farewell address, that's kind of the, you know. The culmination. Culmination. That's the word I was looking for. Um, we go back to everything, and the domestic issues that they're going to pull out is debt and having war debt, um, and the fact that Washington advises us against creating a large national debt, and we clearly didn't follow that. Then um, I let the kids come to that, you know, assumption. Then the next is political parties. He sees the division between the loose and the strict constructionists, and within his own cabinet. And um, he advises us against political parties. Obviously, we didn't follow that. And then the idea of neutrality is the final piece of the farewell address that we talk about, and um, we clearly didn't follow that. Right. And so having kids do that. So how do you, how do you wrap up Washington? Um, I have my kids do a DBQ using everything that they've learned with the farewell address, and it's a mini, so as they go, they get chunks of the farewell address. Yeah, don't have them read the whole thing. I had them read the whole thing one year, and it they did okay with it, but it was a, really a struggle, and you got to have a special group that you can do that with. Like if you got lot. if you have your GT kids, you can do it, but it is a lot, and I didn't I didn't find that there was a really good purpose in doing that. Right, it's just as fine to break it up and chunk it. It's almost like you could do puzzle matching. Like which pe- can you find the piece of the farewell address that addresses this issue, and have the kids kind of do an activity with it that way. We do a homework assignment, but you could do it a lot of different ways. Well, and the thing about this is, it's that chance for to use those, to go into primary source strategies, mm-hmm. having kids analyze it because we know they struggle with grit, they struggle with yeah having the ability. They have the ability to do it. It's convincing them that they have the ability to do it. I think a lot of teachers struggle with teaching students how to do it without 
like kids who come in with almost no background knowledge of how to analyze primary source documents, it's really difficult to teach kids how to do that. When struggling readers. Yeah. And so I would say... And it's a hard document. I I honestly think that it's almost as hard as a Mayflower Compact, if not oh, harder. Because the Mayflower Compact at least has a date. <laughs> like they can identify <laughs> the date and go from there. But the farewell address, like those excerpts are ridiculously difficult. So I, I don't think it's inappropriate then to sometimes modify the actual wording. No, definitely not. I, I, I try to put the word next to it. Right. But I think you can do, and we see this with Stanford's uh, Read Like a Historian. Mm-hmm. They provide you with the actual document and then they'll provide you with a modified version. So don't be afraid to scaffold that and use that to sometimes to speed things up you need to yeah, do that. Yeah. Definitely. And I don't think that's un- I don't think that's uh, unfair to your kids mm-hmm. at all. But we we come up with a report card and they evaluate Washington. They grade him. Yeah, a report card is kind of the, the standard I think on this, and you kind of continue it on with um, maybe through Jefferson and Jackson. Um, we do, yeah. So we do it through Adams, Jefferson, Monroe. Madison. I mean, Madison is really just the War of 1812. We don't talk a lot about his domestic issues. So I never did one for Monroe, Monroe because we only focus on the Monroe Doctrine. Yeah, see, we're changing it. We're talking about with Monroe, we're also going to throw it the Missouri Compromise in there mm. at the same time okay. as Monroe, as his domestic. I know Monroe didn't have a lot to do with that, but it was going on it at that time. happened during his presidency. And so we're going to add him that in as the domestic issue and start showing the crump, like how America's starting to crumble from within on compromise. Okay, I like that. So that's what we're going to do with that. And then we go through Jackson. Um, the last president that they do a report card on is um, Johnson. So Do you do we, one for Lincoln as well? We carry it all the way through. We don't, just because... There's so much. Well, and because the kids all give him A's, <laughs> to be honest with you. And that's okay. That They're totally allowed to do that. And I, I love that they do that. They revere him. Right. And that's great. But um, it's just boring to read, and it's boring analysis. So we skip it. We do something else with Lincoln. Okay. Um, but yeah. So anything you think we missed or anything you think they need to know? I don't. I think that, you know, I just go back to those key focuses of what do you want them to understand about the early republic? We want Mm -hmm. them to understand how do we evaluate leaders? How do we know that there was a good president? And a lot of times that's not known until after they're out of office, right? Right. Um, The power of the federal government is going to increase. We're going to do that with a visual display this year. So we're going to have two bar graphs on the wall. And we started with the Articles of Confederation where the the states had lots of papers on their bar graph and the federal government had like none. And then slowly we're going to take it from the states as everything happens and label it and put it on the national government side. So eventually by the end of the year, the national government's bar graph of power will have grown and the states will have decreased to help them with that visual. That's a fantastic idea. Thanks. So we're going to focus on the Whiskey Rebellion as a reason why the federal government power increases, the Louisiana Purchase with the executive order and the Supreme Court cases. Um, And then also the beginnings of how do we analyze the Constitution, loose versus strict constructionist, and the division of that opinion. And that's still going on today, right? I think so. Well, I think earlier I kind of was dismissive of the precedent thing, but the more I think about it, Precedents also take place in Congress. Yeah. And so I think you can use that, continue to use that, like with the Northwest Ordinance. Mm-hmm. And when you move into 
the Missouri Compromise and you move into Kansas, Nebraska and Compromise of 1850 and all those, you can talk about precedents that have been set and then Dred Scott kind of blows all that up. Yeah, well, precedents run the world. Let's be honest. Yeah. I mean, t it takes a long time to overturn a precedent and that's what, in my opinion, that's what over half of our laws are based on are just decisions that were made that everyone just follows along with. And when someone comes along that does something different or changes that, it really messes with the system. So it's an interesting thought to me. Uh, one last part. You talked, you and I talked before the show about doing uh, some flipped portions yes. with this class. How do you have any, any ideas for people? I do have a YouTube channel that I go through this information. It may not be as detailed as you want for your classroom, but it could give some ideas. But um, I just do flipped, flipped lectures with this. It's not anything amazing, but this is only 19 days and it is so much information and it's so vocabulary intense that for me, it's like having my kids hear it twice is so helpful for them. So do you teach, so when, when I was in the classroom and, and kind of with the teachers that I work with continue, we kind of test Washington by himself. You did? Mm-hmm. Oh no. But they, we kind of got off schedule a little bit, but we, we felt like, do you test, I mean, do you test Washington through Monroe? I test Washington, Washington, the political parties. After I do Washington, I go into the political parties and I teach Hamilton versus Jefferson and the ideas there. Cause that lends itself to Adams and the um, race there for that presidential election. And you know, the electoral college and all of that. Um, which would be the Jefferson Adams race, right? Right. And so it le it lends itself into that. Then I go into Adams presidency and I talk about the Alien and Sedition Act, which we'll talk about in the next episode. And then I go into Jefferson. And after I've done Jefferson, I go into the Supreme Court cases. And then I kind of teach all three Supreme Court cases within a three-day period. And the kids do a historical inquiry with that. And then I say, okay, this was at this time. I go back and put it on the timeline of where we were at when we learned about it, um, just to give them a frame of reference. Then I test. Okay. So it's all of that. Okay. And then we go into what? What's after that? Madison, War, Madison, of, 1812, War of 1812. Monroe. Garrett. And then Industrial Rev. Yeah. It's it, so fast. It is fast. It's so much material to be covered. It is. But All if right. you're teaching it a different way, give us a shout out on Twitter so we can know and and share and discuss. Yeah, and and let us know what your ideas are. Um, if you would, if you're listening to this, share this podcast with your friends. Mm -hmm. Go into iTunes, give yes. us some reviews. Give us a review. Let us know um, what we're doing so that you know other people can see the uh, the show. And um, I don't know what's our next episode. Our next episode is going to be over Adams. We're going to devote a whole episode to him. So I'm, what, like 10 minutes? Excuse me, no. It's Adams. Come on. I know. We so, gotta give him his claim to fame. So, you know he would have wanted it. <laughs> he would have told us how awesome he was. Exactly. So are we gonna do political parties and Adams? Oh dang, we need to do political parties first. Mm. Political parties is the next episode. Then Adams. Alright, so Hamilton versus Jefferson. I'm excited. Alright, y'all have right. a good night. Thanks for listening. Hey there, thanks for listening to our podcast. 
Join in the discussion on Twitter using the hashtag #PastToPresentPod, or tweet us at at #PastToPresentPod. That's past the number two present pod. If you have a minute, please consider helping other educators find our show by sharing our podcast on Twitter or giving us a review on iTunes or Podbean. Special thanks to all those who helped develop the content for today's episode. Audio mixing for this episode done by Lindsay Stevens and music credit to bensound.com. All thoughts and ideas expressed in today's episode are that of the hosts and do not necessarily reflect the beliefs of KDISD.